early on that second one. I think so too. I was anticipating it. <laughs> you have rhythm, man. Of course I do. I'm, I'm, I'm not a white boy like you. I can move. Oh, I can whatever. move my hips. I'm a trained percussionist. Sir. I'm a Latino. <laughs> so what should we get out the uh, maracas and, and cowbells and stuff? Would you be more comfortable using those? That's racist, man. <laughs> well, you know me. <laughs> so you have, your applause, you have your applause button ready. Applause. Do I don't have applause. You don't have an applause. We don't have an applause. Thank you. Oh, that, that's that's even better because okay. the first thing I thought we'd talk about is uh, Mark Benioff getting named uh, CEO uh, Fortune's Reader Choice for Business Person of the Year. Woo! <laughs> Thank you. So, so I guess the nominations went out, and you know, of course, on Twitter, Benioff says, "Hey, go vote for me." And of course, this is, oh, did you say it was Forbes? Yeah. Of course, you know, Salesforce writes checks to Forbes. You know that, right? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, Forbes is just gushing over Salesforce and year over year. I think Benioff is, it's not his first time winning this, isn't it? I don't think so. No, although, I mean, I I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a a ridiculous choice. I mean, I think it's, you know, Salesforce is a hot and growing company and, and Mark is a very public CEO. Even if it's uh, when he's shaming people, he's still, you know, he's always public. Always in the limelight, always on the interviews and the Jim Cramers and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's really surprising. What was the exact award? What was it called? Uh, Fortune Reader's Choice for Business Person of the Year. So that's Reader's Choice. Of course, uh, I'm sure they didn't have their tabulations audited by a public accounting firm. But no. yeah, I guess I, yeah, I guess I thought this was Forbes and it's not. It's Fortune. I mean, I bet there's a lot of people who, if they, you know, if they can only name one CEO, it would be Mark Benioff. Yeah. So. Well, they, they did this across four different industries and they did it across finance, auto, retail, and tech. And of course, Benioff winning out on the tech side. Um, we have Brian Moynihan on Wall Street for Bank of America. I guess that's the finance part. Uh, retail, it was Terry Lundgren, Macy's CEO. Auto Raj Nair Nair Nair. How do you say that? I don't know. Ford product product development chief. So congratulations to all our successful CEOs who are out there making money and making sure we have jobs still. Yeah, I think it's always great to see Benioff up there for tech. Um, just because I th- I think from a Salesforce perspective and from the platform perspective, he's He's the one we hear about most out there, and we talk about cloud and everything else. I mean, he's still out there, and I mean, even as what Salesforce is, God, how old is Salesforce now? Uh, 15 years. 15 years. And he seems to win out on these type of kind of innovation rewards, cloud awards, um, tech awards. So there's still a lot of excitement and things around the platform, and that's always good business for us. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining. Although, you know, Salesforce, I mean, they've got a very active and entrenched PR department. Now they're, they're very good at, you know, getting, making sure he's in these and in the runnings for them and all that kind of stuff. So. Oh, and he's got no shortage of fanboys. That's for sure. Yeah. And like I said, fan I'm not, boys, I'm not, fan girls, fan people. <clears throat> Do we have I think to be politically probably, correct now? Yeah. Uh, that fan persons, John, I'm going to switch topics on us. And, uh, one th- one, I've read something that came out out recently on the Salesforce blogs and it's about, um, Sockwell performance tips. And um, it actually talked about something that I didn't know was an issue. And that was 
querying by uh, last modified versus the system mod stamp. And, you know, I really didn't, even today, I still don't really understand why we have the system mod stamp. I mean, because last modified kind of serves the same purpose. However, the main difference is that, you know, system mod stamp, of course, is anytime the system doesn't update. So triggers, all those kind of things. Or if you opened up the last modified and created by fields and you set those values, say in an import or migration, the system mod stamp will still re- reflect the actual date that record was created versus what you told it. Um, but yeah, and, tr- and trigger, any trigger would still update the last modified. So system mod stamp is for, yeah, it's, uh, it's like other things that I can't even think of an example, but yeah, it's anytime that there's something that's completely separated from a user's action. Like when the system causes something to be updated. Yeah. And if this article is true, meaning that everything this guy wrote, which is questionable because I found some issues with his article, but if it's true, then it's extremely interesting in that he claims that the last modified date isn't a indexed field, but system mod stamp is. So if you're able, if you can try to use system mod stamp and that the only reason it seems like it's indexed is because with certain types of where criterias, it apparently will try to utilize the index on the system mod stamp or something. I'm not sure exactly how the optimizer works on Salesforce, but um, apparently it does something along those lines. So if you, if you do like a greater than or an equals, it tries to use the index on the system mod stamp um, just to, you know, improve performance. But the last modified date itself isn't actually indexed. So, so all audit fields are indexed, including last modified date. So let me, let me find that part where he implies that it's not, um, I might not, so I'll have to read it, but at least that, that's what stuck out to me whenever I, whenever I read that. But either way, he actually, in his examples, when he's actually trying to demonstrate this, he actually used something, and this is why I'm bringing it up, because we talked about this before. Um, he actually has a query in here where he says, select ID name from account where last modified date equals custom date underscore underscore C, meaning he's just trying to illustrate a query where you have a custom date. Yeah. However, the way he wrote it makes it seem like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. You can do a where clause where this is equal to another field. Nope. Can't do that. Right. Which is sad. Why cannot we, why can we not do that? Why cannot we, we can't say account name equal to something or not equal to some other field on the record. It's just still a major limitation of SQL and the whole database system with Salesforce. So you're talking about, you know, where show me uh, context where last name equals first name, like a, a comparison where you're comparing two different fields instead of a field versus a, a literal value. Right. Right. Yeah. It's pretty unbelievable that, you know, Salesforce is 15 years old and this is the year 2014 and this is not possible in Salesforce. And yet we're supposed to believe that Salesforce is an enterprise system. I mean, databases have had this capability for uh, decades. All right. So if he's to be believed, this is where I found, he says, so how does, how does this affect performance of a SQL query? I mean, last modified. Well, he says, how can last modified date filters affect SQL performance? Under the hood, the system mod stamp is indexed, but last modified date is not. The Salesforce query optimizer will intelligently attempt to use index on system mod stamp, even when the SQL query filters on the last modified. So he's basically saying that... If I think this put- guy's making stuff up. This is just not correct. I mean, I'll read from the documentation right here. The following fields are indexed by de- default. Primary keys, including ID, name, and owner, foreign keys, and audit dates, such as last modified date, and custom fields marked as external ID or unique. So he's just wrong. 
Well, I thought so too. And I went to the Salesforce uh, cheat sheets, the documentation that they have. And if you go to the um, uh, query and search optimization cheat sheet, so this is basically, it tells you what's indexed. And it says fields with database indexes, ID, name, owner ID, created date, system mod stamp, record type, index for all standard objects that feature it. So it's not even all record types, apparently. Master detail fields, lookup fields. Other indexes include unique fields and external ID fields. Makes no mention of system mod st- or last modified date. Did it say audit fields, audit dates, or anything like that? Uh, no. Does not. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually looking at the, uh, what is this? S- what is this? Um, working with very large SQL queries from the, uh, what document is this? This is the Apex documentation, not a cheat sheet. So I don't know. Well, this is a Salesforce cheat sheet. This is one of their later, uh, I'm trying to see if there's a date on here, but no, this is from developerforce.com, force.com documentation. It's a PDF document. It's about their database and it does not list last modified date. Yeah, I, I, I would bet I would bet any amount of money though that all those audit fields are indexed. I think they just left it well, off of that I, cheat I sheet. I mean, the cheat sheets aren't near as rigorous as the documentation is, the official documentation. Yeah, but it's not like there's that many fields that are indexed that it wouldn't wouldn't mention it. I I actually think he might actually be correct that the in the background the optim, optimizer is looking at it and saying, "Yeah, we'll just use this one. Why duplicate the? Why yeah, go through so, the extra so you're looking of, at a document, indexing all these fields? You're looking at a document that." And whether purposefully or not omitted that audit dates are indexed. And I'm looking at, and which is, and it's a, a cheat sheet. I'm looking at the actual apex documentation that explicitly includes audit dates, audit dates, such as last modified date is what it says. Plus I've, I mean, I've tested this before. I mean, I have, I explicitly use like last modified date and created date to filter things down and it performs as if it's indexed. I mean, it's gotta be indexed. Well, That's what I mean, I'm saying. I would, it, I would bet money that it is. So maybe it's an inherited index because, I mean, according to what he says, it's the the optimizer is is choosing to use the index for system mod stamp. How do how do what what information does this guy have? He's just making shit up. He's just making that up. I don't know. How do we know the other documents not making it up and saying that all audit fields are no? He's he's talking about how it how Salesforce's query optimizer works, and he's. He's just making this that up. This is not a general blog. This is the Salesforce developers blog in the engineering section published on the salesforce.com blog, developers blog. I promise you that doc- this was docu- published this- November 7th, 2014. Okay, so I've got a newer document, the latest Apex document that again undergoes much more scrutiny, scrut- scrutiny that says it is that it is indexed and all of my experience indicates that these are indexed because I filter I use them explicitly on filters. This is also documentation that talks about the selective. Do you know what a selective query is or what they, Salesforce calls a selective query? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But explain it. I may know. Uh, so it's just, well, what Salesforce calls a selective query is, is when you query on, like, on at le- when you filter on at least one index field and that has the effect of reducing the resulting number of rows, uh, rows you know, in, in, based on a certain, certain threshold. It's, uh, it's uh, 10% you have to reduce it at least by 10% of the records for the first million records and less than 5% after the first million. So basically it's, it, you know, generally speaking, as long as you're using a, um, a filter on an indexed field that, that is having, that is having a, 
you know, at least a 10% effect, then you're, you have a selective query. And there's some, there's some situations where you get more, uh, you get more, um, like limits increased or something. If you use selective queries, I can't remember. There's like certain areas where you have to use selective queries. And I, do you remember where they are? Um, yeah, actually that cheat sheet identifies a bunch of them. Like what, where do you, what, how does it, other than being faster, how does it, do you get more limits or how does it benefit you to use a selective query? I think it's just a performance. It's, it's okay. not a matter of getting more records back or anything like that. You just get performance. You're, you're less likely to hit a timeout and you don't have to rerun your query. Of yeah, course. but there's a, there's a certain reason why Salesforce says that the, in order to be, you, it's not, you can't, it's not just filtering on an index field that has to at least reduce the records by 10%. And then that's considered selective. And I think there's a reason they define that and why they make that particular threshold to be considered a selective query. Um, And I don't know what it is. By by this index, it mentions a a ceiling. And and so there's certain, like from one to 1 million, it's 10%. That's a hundred thousand ceiling. And then Mm -hmm. from 5% of 1 million plus records, that's a 233,000 ceiling. And then I guess above that, there's a 333,000 ceiling on records. Yeah, so for the best performance, SQL queries must be selective, particularly for queries inside of triggers. To avoid long execution times, oh, yeah, non-selective SQL queries may be terminated by the system. Well, yeah, I mean, that's your, that's your performance. Well, I mean, it's not just performance. It's that Salesforce will terminate you if, you if it's taking too long and it's a non-selective query. I think, I think as long as you are, your query is selective, then they're saying we won't terminate you. I don't know. I've never, I don't think I've ever experienced being terminated in that way, but. Well, it's hard to tell because there's that upper 10,000 limit on, on code execution, even though it excludes query time, but I'm sure there's an upper limit on query time that it will, it'll just time out as well. Yeah. So you're probably more likely going to hit the 10 second limit than you are the other, the latter. Yeah. Cause I don't think they'll let a query cause like, right. So it trans your maximum time for a transaction in general is, is 10 seconds, but I don't think that means that that's how long they'll let a query run. I think they'll, I think the amount of time they'll let a query run is a fraction of that. Well, I've, and that's, I've, well, using external tools, I've had queries time out on me and had to either try to retry them to rerun them and see if it's cached enough to return a response or something. I have, I have too. And isn't that weird that when you run it the second time, it returns because something got cached on the previous, even though the previous one erred <laughs> is a time down, it, it'll run the second time because things are, you know, it's the system is warmed up or something, or those records right. are, in some closer cache or something. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's, that's mainly a... But that's on API stuff, right? That's when you're calling externally, not in Apex, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think that, may, that mainly exists because of the ability to, or not the ability, but the, the batchable, the, the query more feature. It has to kind of index and chunk that into some temporary location so that you get your query locator and you're able to move through that record set, you know, chunks at a time. So it's, it's got to have that cache somewhere and it's got to build it somewhere. I think for other operations, it's probably not doing that caching and it's just going to time out once it's done. And I think that's kind of a, a performance downside that's built into that whole query locator architecture is that I believe that when you do a query externally and you get a query locator, I think that query locator represents a fixed set of IDs because you can keep calling query more. And it's a basically, it's basically a, it's kind of like an offline or asynchronous version of like acid, meaning that even if people have added records, when you call query more, 
you're not going to get those more. You're not going to get those new records in that particular uh, query locator. It's a cursor that represents a set of IDs that has that was determined at the beginning, and you have to you'd have to issue a new query in order to see any new records that were added after you got that query locator. It's really interesting, but I think the downside is is when you do issue that initial query, Salesforce has got to build that entire list of IDs and store them before it can even return that query back to you. Right. I guess it's just a way of doing, you know, acid type, you know, controlling what's it like visibility or uh, uh, isolation, query isolation in, you know, disconnected asynchronous systems. Yeah. Well, back to last modified, one of them's right, one of them's wrong. Um, or there could just be a scenario where one is true and the other one's not true. Maybe we're talking last modified on standard objects and maybe custom objects. It's last modified that's indexed. Either way, the article is written by Daisuke Kawamoto. He's an architect evangelist with the technical enablement team of Salesforce.com. So they're customer-centric engineering group, apparently. Sales engineers. Uh, well, you should, evangelist. Uh, you, you should comment on that post and ask him, say, hey, can you clear this up? The Sockwell docs say that uh, this is indexed. Well, that's, yeah, and that's why I think there might be, it might be either implied because of that inherited optimizer that and they're just saying, well, technically it is indexed because it's going to use an index column, even if you do use less modified. Um, they also have this, this note in here about a skinny table, and it says, if you have performance issues due to large data volume, consider adding a skinny table. Skinny tables include index last modified date by default. So they, even that's a little contradictory because it's saying last modified date is indexed on that scenario. Yeah, either, either he knows more than the documentation writers do, or he's... The, or he's, he's got some bad information. Well, the whole article was dedicated to that. This wasn't like one piece of the article. It was the entire point of the article to mention yeah. that system modified is, is the actual indexed field. Yeah, I don't think that necessarily means he's right, though. What? We can't believe anything we read on the internet? <laughs> what's this <laughs> I, I, well, world coming to y- and we can't right. believe what's written on the internet? On, on a the Salesforce internet. blog, no less. All right, what's next? Uh, I saw I saw a thing on uh, where did I see this? I think this is on like the Salesforce developer site. Force.com is the only platform that lets you build powerful enterprise applications without writing a line of code. <laughs> they're really they're really doubling down on this like no code, uh, drag and drop, you know, programming. Yeah, because developers are expensive. I mean, the the thing is, is like I'm afraid people are going to believe this. It is believable. I mean, you can do quite a bit. It, even now, even with the new process builder, I've I've heard of people starting to use that as it's as it's out now, and they're able to actually actually able to do a lot more things that that we had to do triggers for, um, and they're loving it. You can do some things with drag and drop, right? Well, but, I mean, just the ability to trigger on an event and have it create a record or do something along those lines that you couldn't do with standard workflow is opening up a whole new set of doors for just automation. Right, but that there's still a huge leap from that to you you don't have to use any code to to build applications. And, and it also, I think does a disservice to the, to the idea that to use the right tool for the job, don't send this message that, you know, no coding anymore. How about the message of we've got this range of tools, depending on what your task is, you know, you may be able to drag and drop some lightning process stuff, or you may have to write uh, some code, you know, and, and, I, and I'm again, I'm sure this is just, you know, marketing gone wild, right? They're, they, they take a, a, a small something that's true in a very small context and blasted blast a message out as if that's the global truth. Right. 
Well, I don't know. I, I'm, and, I'm and of the, the other- perspective that you should try to do it native and do as much as you can native, and then we'll look at customizing. Are you saying, but you're saying like Apex code's not native. No, I'm saying use the drag and drop point tools to do as much as you can before we start customizing the system. Well, they're, I mean, dragging and dropping a, a process that creates it, that's customizing the system. Well, before we put custom code into the system, before we start creating visual force pages, before we start creating a bunch of triggers, before we do all of that, see how far you can get with the standard tools. I guess it, it just completely determines on what you're, it depends on what you're trying to do. And the other thing I don't like about this message of just drag and drop it is it encourages a zero test environment where you don't have any tests in place to not only make sure that what you think is happening is actually happening, but also to provide um, regression testing so that when you, so that you can confidently make changes in your system and, and know that if you have broken something, you're going to know about it. It's really not, it's not a responsible way to, you know, it's not a responsible message and that's not a responsible way to build a system. And again, I'm assuming people are building systems that are important for their business. And these things yeah, matter. but not everyone's trying to build a whole new custom application within Salesforce. I mean, most of them are, you know, they have a CRM application. They're trying to automate and build as much as they can. And the point and click tools can do that. It's when we get they, into... They can, but isn't it still important that the system is doing what you think it's doing? And that in the future, when you further customize, even if it's just drag and drop, that you haven't broken something. And then, and then if you do break something, you're going to know about it because you can run your test suite and find out what needs to be addressed. No, I agree. That's a major gap in, in, in but it's, it's a, with most point and click tools where you're building and dragging and dropping, there's no, there's no inherent unit test. That's, that concept doesn't really exist. It exists for us as developers because we're writing code and we understand that mechanism and, and how it benefits us and all but those the only things. Reason but it, the only reason it doesn't exist is, is, is for cultural reasons. Like we, you know, good software engineers understand how important it is to have a solid test suite. And in many cases, why it's important to test first. So that's why I think this, this idea that you can just drag and drop stuff and you don't have to worry about any, you know, creating any tests for your system is just not a good way to build a system. And it's going to get you into trouble. And that's why there is just no end of su- to the supply of Salesforce rescue projects. No, I agree. I mean, I think it's a gap. I think I th- I've been burned more than once and we all have on deploying something and some new validation or workflow rule just breaks a ton of tests and we've we've been forced to abstract and almost over-engineer our unit testing plans just to account for all of this and try and make it as easy to work around as possible, which is further made more difficult because that's just class bloat and we don't have namespacing. So we're just we're, we're just stuck with a lot of just compromises, I guess. Horrible comprom one-sided compromises, yep. I'll say. Can you anyway, call is, is there such a thing as a one-sided compromise that that just does. That doesn't sound mm, right. No, that's. I don't think. I think that's a contradiction in terms. <laughs> exactly. So, what do you think about the new trailhead? Then, I think it's. I mean, what is? So, this is their. I haven't. I haven't. I haven't used it, but this is the new training online. You know, uh, yep. almost like a con academy for Salesforce, basically, right? Right. And you can think. I so, think it's cool. I mean, it's. I mean, the idea is cool. Um, again, I'm concerned about the. Um, lack of leadership on Salesforce's part in and determ- in understanding, you know, when to, you know, when to have your, you know, administrator be coding things and when to have, you know, experienced professional software engineers working on your system. 
True. I mean, that's a whole different topic. I, I think, but what do you think about Trailhead in terms of just being a, a gamifi- gamified training tool? I mean, you you basically have these challenges, is what they are, to do a certain activity, to program a certain activity, and you get a certain number of points out of it. And so it, it's been gamified to to kind of encourage that. I think for a lot of people, that's a good way to learn. It makes it makes it fun and gives you challenges and it might even, I'm sure it has social aspects to it. Can you, are there like leaderboards or can you compete with people or, or, you know, see how many people have certain badges and things like that? Or, um, I haven't gotten to it that far. I actually have been meaning to just, just do one of the challenges and see, you know, what happens. But I mean, you can, there's of course all those sharing links on it. So you can certainly kind of post and share. And I've seen people on Twitter talk about, Oh, how they created their first trigger and how they're so excited. And, that cringe. This is my cringe. You can't see yep. my face, but cringe. Oh, I'm a developer now. Yep. No, no, me too. <laughs> because I, again, the, the lack of, there's a lack of uh, self-awareness on the part of you know, Salesforce users, cust- you know, customers of Salesforce. Um, there's a lack of self-awareness there. They don't even understand when they need to, you know, when, when this becomes serious, you know, when they need to, um, make sure that the right people are doing the right type of work, the people, you know, and, and there are more, there's more to the skill. Uh, there's, you know, of building systems than, than just passing some perfunctory apex one one trailhead test. Yeah. And I just, I, again, I think, I think the idea of people learning more about the system is, is great. And if people want to get serious about, you know, switching, literally switching careers and becoming a software engineer, then that's fine. But I, but I don't think that that's the message Salesforce is sending. I mean, did you see this article, the Salesforce platform, the return of the citizen programmer that uh, this guy, Dan Appleman wrote? No. I mean, he talks about that, about how, and he talks about how Salesforce is kind of like the, the, the VB, you know, that were, you know, you've got all kinds of people getting involved. And I mean, what he means by citizen programmer is just all these people who aren't programmers doing programming. And his ultimate conclusion, this is really good because Salesforce is the best system ever and it's, you know, should be the system you use for everything and how anyone can, you know, program on Salesforce. And, you know, I just, (laughs) I think that you have to be careful. It depends on what you're building and how important the system is to you. There, there's a thing called software engineering for a reason. And if you don't understand, you know, patterns and and architecture and engineering techniques and quality and testing and just all these things that go into building a good system that's well factored and maintainable and understandable and testable then you're going to be in trouble if you if you build something big or if you try to build something big again i mean that's why there's i think there's there are so many salesforce rescue projects i mean far more than there are qualified people to deal with because there's so much shoddy programming going on. You can make it available to the masses and you can do it on trailhead and all this kind of stuff. And that, that's, again, I think that's overall a good thing, but you have to have the self-awareness as an organization to know, to put the right people on a job. And Salesforce is not helping there. That's what I'm saying. They're not, they're not, I don't see any leadership or any help from Salesforce in, in, in that area that, you know, I can think Salesforce sees it as their as being in their best interest to, to turn everyone into a citizen programmer. Oh, there's, there's points of what you said. I agree with, and there's points that I, I think I disagree with. I, I think the fact that someone's learning on the job and they have a, a true requirement that they're trying to meet and they're actually able to meet it. 
it, it may not be an elegant solution, it may not be a perfect solution, but they're able to meet it. They're able to accomplish something and it's energized them to learn more about development and maybe even start a new career. Like you said, um, I don't see that as a bad thing. I, I that's, that's self- I didn't dis- say that was a bad thing. Well, that's no, I'm just I'm making a, a general point mm-hmm. that I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that journey of self-discovery and truly finding something that you think you'll really enjoy is far better than the guy who, who's got a master's degree in software engineering and can barely code anything because he spent his entire time either using code generators or, or for some other reason, just isn't a good developer. I mean, there's plenty of examples of people who actually went through school and claim to be professional developers and they, they're horrible at it. And they don't, they don't have sure. the right mindset to actually design or, or architect anything. Like Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think, I think discovering a passion for development in a real world environment isn't a bad thing. I think the tools and the challenges there are not a bad thing. Um, I'm not, I don't think I expect Salesforce to lead the charge and tell people how to be good developers. I, I think that's more of an internal it, it, it's it's internal. It's you having passion for what you're doing and being a professional at it and saying, I care about this enough that I'm going to be good at it. Because it, it really does. The, the, most industries, and ours especially, there's no, hey, I know everything about this. I can do this in my sleep. No, we're constantly learning new languages, constantly learning new techniques, constantly learning you know, changes in the languages and the compilers and, and all these new techniques of doing things or just adapting to new devices now with mobile and everything. So we're, we're always learning. We're always growing. We're always, you have to have that passion to keep moving forward. Otherwise you're going to be a dinosaur and you're going to stagnate and there's, there's really no point to it. So, I mean, I, I, I think if someone discovers that they're, they want to be a developer no matter how late in life or what they're doing because they were an admin of Salesforce, I, I think that's awesome. Totally agree. And I think, I think the tools will help them do that. I mean, some people just need a little more guidance and I think the trailhead is not bad. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. Um, if anything, it's just, I mean, I think, you know, like for administrators, I've, I've always said that I think the more they understand about how the more developer-y aspects of Salesforce works, the better they are. They'll, they have a better idea of, of what's possible, where the boundaries of the system are, what the, what, you know, what the limits are, what's what's feasible and what's not. I mean, that's, that's all good. Um, and I think if I can bring in a point that you made previously is that the best kind of customer for, for guys like us is the customer who's had bad developers or has had to try to solve a problem either with the tooling or even tried to code it themselves and realized how big of a problem it is or how challenging of, of a problem it is. You know, those are good customers for us because they'll understand the methodology that we're going through, they'll understand the reason we have to do the things that we're doing or the reason that we're coding it the way we're coding it because, because they have that perspective. If, if they just assume that programming is easy and anyone can do it and that, you know, we should be able to, you know, make Salesforce brew a cup of coffee in a matter of an hour, then, you know, that's not the right customer. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, you're, I'm always um, careful with uh, customers or, you know, someone who's got some kind of, project that i feel like they've not done this before they they don't understand the expectations they don't understand what's involved you know their expectations are just basically out of line um they don't know how to um evaluate the the right people for the project you know that's that those are all red flags for me yeah and i i personally i would i would put a call out to say hey if you're a project manager if you're a business analyst if you're a system admin go and take some of these trailhead challenges and see what it is that we do and how 
seemingly easy something can be and how seemingly difficult something can be. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a tough balancing act for us to, to try and take a requirement. I mean, some requirements are super easy and we get them done a couple of minutes, hour, whatever it takes. And then some that seem just like they should be a couple of minutes to an hour are just days of work. Yeah. To do them right. Yep. And especially if we want to include some kind of dynamic element or the ability to modify some variable within the, the logic, um, that just opens up a whole new world of complexity. Hmm. Which you kind of take for granted with a lot of the point and click tools because you can just go in and change them at any point in time, even in production. Which is why you can also so easily break things and not know it. I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just depends. I mean, different different organizations have different le- um, like thresholds of acceptability for you know problems and inaccuracy and downtime and um, maintainability you know uh, different requirements on turnaround time for changes to a system and it it just all depends on what what you need and the more uh, sophisticated an organization is the more it really matters that they build systems right and they have the right people to do that So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's, it's an ongoing balancing act. It's always hard to get that right to know, well, you know, what type of people, I mean, people are, you know, these are all people problems. There's so little of what we deal with is actually a technology problem. It's almost always people problems. You know, they say that what's, you know, a good developer is, you know, 10 X as productive as a, as a bad developer. And in, in some cases I wouldn't say bad, like even just mediocre developer. And in some cases, you know, a lot of times, you know, you've got developers that are just actively harming. I mean, every time they, for everything they create, um, they're actually creating problems, not solving problems. And I'm sure you've seen that and dealt with that. Yeah. And it just depends on, on the client. Some of them are willing to say, hey, we tried this. It didn't work out. You know, whatever you suggest, we'll go with. And then there's others that have just kind of taken a personal ownership of it to the point where if you say that was the wrong thing to do or even just try attempt to change it, it, it becomes a personal attack. So yeah, that's a major red flag too. Um, people that take a, that get personal about the code or the product or anything. That's a huge red flag. Uh, yeah. I usually will pass on those, but I think that's rare. I don't think I've run into that maybe once or twice in the years I've been doing this. I can't say that I've run into that a lot. Uh, so Salesforce, just before we started, released their Q3 results. Did you see that? Q, I guess it's considered two, fiscal year 2015 Q3. Um, no, especially not if it was right before we started. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, so they expect fourth quarter revenues of something 1.4 billion. It was basically right in line. Like I think they beat the street by a cent on their earnings, which is what they always do. Um, what's weird, though, I think the thing I noticed, though, is that professional services are still growing faster than subscription revenue is. I don't know. I'm just I'm just ready for the just endless articles on how Salesforce did good, not so good than what we were expecting, but they're still awesome. You know, <laughs> but, but you know, as far as you know, okay, so back to my the the professional services revenue versus subscription revenue. What have I always said about Salesforce and the PS business and what what will happen to that PS business? It's particularly you know, that's, that's, you know, cause 90% of the PS is, is performed by partners. What have I always said about that? You know, no, you know what I'm talking about It's what'll happen is because this happens in, in all these vendors throughout, you know, history, as soon as revenue starts to plateau, that's when they start basically 
come, you know, they're sucking in all the, you know, taking, keeping more of the PS business in house, either by buying partners or just starving partners. Uh, that you'll see them take in more and more of that PS business. Now, currently, I don't think Salesforce even wants the PS business. It's not as profitable. It's um, I think they do it because they have to. They're they are especially the bigger their bigger customers require Salesforce to do you know implementation and stuff for them. Mm-hmm. But you know when Salesforce starts plateauing, look look at look out for that PS business. That that will become a more important component of their business. And yeah, and, I, and, the, and the weird thing is, this is like the second quarter in a row where PS business has outstripped, uh, or has grown faster than subscription. The script, subscription revenue has. Yeah, I, 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 I do recall you saying that on a number of occasions. I still think that's a long way off. I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I mean, it's especially as they get more into enterprise. There's just no way they're going to have enough bodies internally to to service all that. Although, I mean, they have the new tower being built that they're going to take. Uh, primary leaser of they just bought one of the buildings that they're currently in um, it still has other tenants but they've basically i think the idea is that once those other tenants leases expire they'll they'll just start taking over that space so um they've been growing and they've been adding a lot of places to add more people so it maybe it's possible maybe it's sooner around the corner than i think uh, or what else are they going to yeah. fill those spaces with I don't know. I mean, I definitely see your point though as far as I mean, I think I think there's still a lot of upside to Salesforce. I mean, I think the software as a service business is still it's still a baby. And you know, the way that Salesforce has expanded, they started a CRM, but now they're you know, it's social and marketing and platform and all this other stuff. I mean, uh, big data or I guess it's not big data, business intelligence. Yeah. And I think they're going to continue a you know, service, right? That's a huge one. So they've They've really grown that business. They've um, there's still probably a lot of upside. I mean, right now they're valued at like what like thirty six billion dollars or something like that, which is weird because their true losses are what they call a gap. You know, if you if you by gap rules, they're still losing money, mm-hmm. and you know, they're supposed to have like they they're projecting in two thousand sixteen like six point five billion in revenue. So they're trading at like they're trading at six x their two thousand sixteen revenues without still without producing any profits really to, to speak of it's, it's you know, <laughs> every, every quarter we always talk about this, like how long, how much longer can this go on? I think it's I they're think, 15, they're 15 years old now. <laughs> yeah. But they're not the only one doing it. They're almost an adult. It's, it's almost <laughs> like the new model just companies that are just continuing focused on growth and not profitability. I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's essentially the new model of these days. I'm not sure if that's a bubble that's going to break at any point or what, but that's, that's how it is. Yeah, uh, it's definitely interesting. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's a new world where I have I have read a few or seen a few articles and titles just saying that um, acquisitions is is probably the next big bubble with so many companies just going through and just building their business on acquisitions that that potentially could be a bubble that's going to break. And I guess that points to this whole growth model of you know focusing on growth, not profitability. Yeah, I mean the acquisition that's I guess been a at least a significant part of Salesforce's growth, right? I mean, I remember after they bought, what was it, Exact Target? That was such a big acquisition that that was responsible for like a majority of their growth when during that acquisition. Right. Well, we'll see. I mean, Benioff has done pretty well at steering the company so far, so we'll see if that still holds true. Um, it, it, growth hasn't slowed. I mean, they're still growing, so. No, and I guess what... Inv- there's still enough there to to potentially say, hey, this is still a great company to invest in. Yeah, I mean... Even though they haven't produced profit, I mean, 
you know, the fact that he's got them at a six X valuation of, of 2016 revenues right. is, I mean, that, that obviously makes your investors happy. Um, the, the, the concern though is that right now that's, that's obviously an inflated number. I mean, it's like, it's like a blowfish, right? It's, it's all puffed out, but what happens when the first little needle comes along and, and pops into that thing? And that needle will take the form of missing an expectation. The first time they do it, that's when you're going to see a needle pop that thing. I don't know. That's that dire. I think, I think, I think they could survive one poke. I think, um, well, that's the question is like, what would it take to, because right now, again, it's, it's puffed up, right? It's, I mean, six X of 2016 revenues. I mean, that's, that's, that's speculating on a lot of future assumptions that what Salesforce can do in terms of turning this profitability thing around. And, and right now everyone's like, okay, we're, we're buying it right. Tentatively. And, and we're hoping, but if that hope starts to fade, if, if there are, if future information, you know, if, if future information, uh, I've got information, man, new shit has come to light. If some new stuff comes to light that, that indicates that maybe it's not, you know, that these profits aren't going to materialize the way that they need to, or, or, or investors just run out of patience. That's the other thing. I mean, Salesforce is 15 years old now. How much patience are they going to have? How much are they going to continue to buy this whole gap story versus non-gap? Um, I don't know. It's at some point though, either they're going to have to be profitable and turn this thing around or pay, investors will lose patience. Now, is that a year from now? Is that five years from now? I don't know. I mean, I'm not an investing expert. I just do index funds. <laughs> it, it, I, I don't, I don't see that being a danger anytime soon. I think their growth is, is enough to, to keep well, Jim, Jim Cramer is going to do everything in his power to make sure that doesn't happen. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, if Salesforce is a blowfish, he's going to have got an air pump jet shoved up its butt, pumping, pumping it, <laughs> keeping it pumped up. <laughs> he is a cheerleader, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he is. He and Benioff are, are chums. Oh, speaking of chums, it's Yoshiki's birthday. I mean, this won't, this will air <laughs> not on his birthday, but the day we're wanna, recording it is Yoshiki's birthday. I don't even want to know how you know that. I follow. You're up. starting to worry me, John. <laughs> <laughs> I told you if I was ever rich, I'd want to hang out with Yoshiki and Vinia. Man. <laughs> no, you I follow about, him on Twitter. So you talk about Yoshiki way too much. Everyone's doing, and they got the band back together. They're doing another tour. <laughs> I think we, I think that was a good show. Nothing else. I no, I'm tired. I have nothing else. Yeah. You want to talk about Facebook at work? Facebook at work. Yeah, they have like a, it's like a chatter like system. So it's like Facebook for work. I'm so done with Facebook. Yeah, I'm too, but I thought it was interesting. So what is it then? It's like a little social network for your work. It's, you know, running on the Facebook platform. That, that, that whole thing, everyone's trying to figure that out. We have chatter. We have, I know we have all these different, what Yammer, all those different tools that wants to be that. Facebook actually might have a good shot at it. Some people spend a lot of time on Facebook and Users would be like, oh, I'm, I'm not on my personal Facebook. I'm on my work Facebook. Right. Although that, that could be potentially dangerous because you could accidentally think you're on your personal and start doing stuff on your public Facebook yep. or your mm-hmm. company Facebook. Right. Same with Twitter. We also didn't talk about .NET being open sourced and ported. Yeah, I, I was kind of avoiding that because that's such a big topic. I know. And I, got, I, got, I have time to absorb that. That's, it's, I don't know if I feel like super enthused by it because I am a, a .NET developer. Or 
or not because I've kind of wanted to transition into Apple a little bit more and get into the Swift language and all that kind of stuff. And this would just drag me back into the .NET world because I'm so comfortable with it. That's another thing. That's another I danger. I see that as a good thing. That's though. a danger for developers. I'm so comfortable with it that, that it's, I'm like, well, I have to learn it, learn to do this in this other language, but I could do it in a minute here instead of, you know, an hour over here or a day over here because I got to learn all this new stuff. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't see that. I don't see those two things as exclusive. I mean, you could certainly, you know, be doing iOS and Swift things, but still do .NET on the server. Uh, it's just, it's a crutch for me. .NET is a crutch for me. Well, I if if this materializes, I would see it as less and less of a crutch. I mean, if it's if it's the most important thing to me is that it's cross platform. Yeah, and I, I really do like the IDE, and I love the tools and all the refactoring that's that's in that. I mean, I just. Going from Apex to .NET, I'm <laughs> just like, oh, the world is awesome again. <laughs> yeah. Everything in the world is good. Yeah. So. All right. Anyway, well, maybe next time. Next time. And we still have to talk about Lightning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, next week, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I've got some good notes on that and some updates, I think. So, we'll beat that one next time. And to that, I say, good day, sir. Good day, sir. I'm a Latino. I can move my hips. Do you know the website number? I, uh, you know, I should have it in front of me, and I don't. You lose! Thank you.